January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, trafficking and other human rights violations have increased, while there has been a decrease in financial and human resources dedicated to anti-trafficking and protections. As the pandemic rages on, government resources have been diverted to focus more on the growing health and economic concerns. Rest assured, agency administrators stay committed to anti-trafficking efforts. This year's Spotlight Month is dedicated to educating ourselves about human trafficking, and more importantly, to learn the signs of its existence. The North Carolina Justice Academy is committed to this focus and accordingly will dedicate the entire month to different aspects and issues involved in human trafficking. Field crest towards Clanton. I'm turning around as I'm driving down Clanton. I'm turning around and see if I can find him again. Columbus, subject U1074, electronic, NCJA 1014. NCJA 1014. We open this series of podcasts focusing on a group of individuals that I'd be willing to bet very few ever associate with human trafficking. And I'd put down yet another bet that even fewer knew this group was regulated and which state agency was responsible for the oversight. The associated group are bail bondsmen. And in the great state of North Carolina, they are the responsibility of the North Carolina Department of Insurance. In this episode, we'll hear from the regulatory and enforcement sides of the department and how you can improve your recognition skills on just how bail bondsmen and human trafficking can coexist. We have assembled a panel of experts from the North Carolina Department of Insurance, and they are Joshua Falls, Criminal Investigations Division District Commander, Special Agent Tyler Carpenter, and Jordan Green from the Criminal Legal Services Division within the North Carolina Department of Insurance. Also joining us is Amber Burgess-Cox. She is an instructor developer at the North Carolina Justice Academy West Campus in Edneyville. I want to thank you all for joining us and being part of this podcast as we kick off the spotlight on Human Trafficking Month in January. A lot to cover, so let's get right to it. Josh, if you don't mind, let's begin with a brief overview of the Department of Insurance and its responsibilities. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for having us on. So the Office of Insurance Commissioner was created under the North Carolina Constitutional Authority in 1899, so our office is pretty old. Uh, the Commissioner's Office itself was empowered to in investigative, administrative, and regulatory duties uh, as far as insurance and also serves as the State Office of Fire Marshal. And in addition to that, we also regulate the bail bonding industry, motor club carriers, collection agencies, and premium finance companies that operate in our state. So we have uh, quite a few entities that fall under our umbrella. As far as our criminal investigations division, it, it's actually the oldest fraud investigations unit in the nation. And this was created in 1945. So when Commissioner Causey took office in 2017, he was real passionate about making our office more consumer friendly for all 100 counties in the state. And he actually doubled our criminal investigations division. Um, he created the Fraud Control Group, and this consists of the Bell Bonding Regulatory Division, our Criminal Investigations, and our Criminal Legal Services, uh, which, which helped us better regulate the bail bonding industry and helped us to uh, better investigate insurance fraud. 
So our criminal investigations division, uh, it consists of four districts divided across the state, have approximately 45 agents, and they all have statewide general law enforcement jurisdiction, which means they can enforce not only insurance laws, but general laws as well. So they can enforce any, any law in North Carolina. We work with the locals, we work with state, and we work with federal uh, agencies. And we also work with the private industry to investigate all aspects of fraud, whether it's uh, the consumer being frauded or the uh, company defrauding. So we, we have a pretty big umbrella. Well, needless to say, I think you just opened the eyes and ears of a lot of folks who are listening because I being one of them, Department of Insurance is a lot more than just your insurance card that you take to the doctor or the hospital, isn't it? Yes, sir, it certainly is. And it's estimated that 20% of what you pay in your insurance premium goes towards the cost of fraud. So uh, it's it's certainly good to uh, be out there enforcing these enforcing these laws to keep the cost of insurance down for all of us in this great state. Yeah, it certainly is. I want to touch on one of the pieces that you described in your explanation of what the Department of Insurance in North Carolina is all about. Tell us a little bit more about the kinds of investigative assistance that the DOI can provide to law enforcement in North Carolina. Yes, sir. Uh, since we regulate the insurance industry, our office has the authority to demand records related to insurance policies, claims, and some of those files contain uh, in those insurance uh, files, it contains payment information, recorded interviews, examinations under oath, and personal uh, demographics of individuals that are involved with claims. So I, before coming to the state, and this is going on my 10th year with the state, I, I worked as a local detective at a police department. And I can think of so many times when I could have used that information to help solve crime. And some examples that come to my mind is those suspicious breaking and entering claims, you know, no forced entry, no, no real leads, um, suspicious fire losses, just in, in inflated amounts of information that are being provided on these police reports that just doesn't quite make sense. Uh, motor vehicle accidents that I investigated uh, that, you know, putting, putting the pieces together, it just was, didn't really make sense. But as, as an officer, you only have so much time and you've got so many cases that are coming in. So you, you follow up on the ones that you have the most leads on and you're reflecting back on that. There could have been another motive and it could have been insurance fraud. So being able to reach out to the State Department of Insurance, I could have obtained some files and some information that maybe could have helped me solve some cases that otherwise went uh, unsolved. So that's that's one resource that we have uh, available is just being able to get those files and assist in that manner. But we also have access to a database called ISO claims. Uh, this serves as a historical data of all claims that have been filed. The database allows the users to search uh, not only by the insured's information, but claimants' names. We can uh, look up phone numbers, vehicle information, and addresses to see if they were associated with claims. Now, everybody knows that even the bad guys are going to provide their home information and the correct phone numbers to the insurance company because they want to get paid. So that's just some information that we, we, we can provide. Um, but in addition to our field agents who are more than happy to assist with, with these type of investigations, we also have a crime analyst on staff and a forensic accountant and attorneys to help us aid with, uh, with these investigations to bring these criminal cases to a successful prosecution. So let me try to break this down just, just a little bit to make it simplistic for me. If I am a law enforcement officer and I get a call for service and I see some things here that, that may not add up, 
just like you said, maybe it's a, a vehicle accident, maybe it's a B&E where a large amount of maybe money, property, something is stolen, and I just don't feel good about it. I know now that there's a criminal investigative division within the Department of Insurance that can help me. How would I go about initiating that contact and, and what kinds of information do I need to bring to the table in order to help you? Great question. So the easiest way to get a hold of us would be through our website, ncdoi.gov. Uh, you can reach out, file a complaint directly with our agency, or uh, simply pick up the phone and uh, call one of our agents directly. Um, the information that we would need to obtain a claim file would, would be the insured or the claimant's name. And it's just as much demographic information as can be provided, but we, we get calls all the time to assist with uh, the, those particular types of crimes, with suspicious losses, inflated claims, and even uh, life insurance fraud. Uh, people change, changing beneficiaries' names on uh, life insurance policies to in an attempt to collect monies. But just as much information as you can bring to the table would be helpful, but the easiest way to get a hold of us would be through our, our website or if you log on to our website, it's also got our contact information for the supervisors across the state. Reach out to one of the supervisors in your geographic area and we can uh, assist you. Okay, great information for our listeners. Thanks again for that. And by this time, our listeners are going, hey, didn't you say this thing was about human trafficking and bail bondsmen? I apologize for taking you so far up into the weeds, but that was just great information that I know a lot of law enforcement guys out there probably were unfamiliar with. And I wanted to make sure that they were equipped with that. So let's get into the meat of our subject in dealing with human trafficking and bail bondsmen. And Jordan, I'd like to call on you to, first of all, take us through the process of becoming a bail bondsman in North Carolina. Certainly, Kirk. Uh, of course, you asked the attorney the, the boring question about what qualifications uh, are, are needed. Um, it's pretty straightforward in our statutes, uh, NCGS 58-71-50. Uh, all the applicants must uh, apply and pay an application fee. You have to be 21 years old or older, have a high school diploma, uh, be a resident of North Carolina, have a North Carolina driver's license, cannot be a convicted felon. You cannot have any back child support or back taxes owed. You have to take uh, what we refer to as the pre-licensing class and then ultimately pass an examination that's administered by DOI. And if you pass the test, you become a provisional licensee where your first year as a bail bondsman, you have to have a supervising bail bondsman uh, supervise you and kind of bless everything that you do. Uh, they also have to take uh, 12 hours of continuing education every year to keep that license, which is uh, renewed every two years. And I'll say that we have 2,200 or so licensed bail bondsmen in North Carolina currently, and the overwhelming majority of them do a great job and provide a much needed service, they're a big part of the criminal justice system. Uh, if anybody's sitting in jail and wants to get out, bail bondsmen are usually their first and sometimes only opportunity to get out. Um, so I know we're focusing on human trafficking today, but I did want to take the opportunity to say the overwhelming majority of our bondsmen do great work and provide a great service. When we're talking about human traffickers, of course, one is one too many. Well, in your defense, Yes, you are the attorney. I didn't mean to ask you a boring question. I meant to ask you a question where I could get a thorough answer. And that's exactly what you gave us. Thank you for that, Jordan. I want to follow up with that, too. Uh, I remember as a young police officer, we would periodically get calls to meet bondsmen 
at a residence where they thought they had had someone, for lack of a better term, had jumped bail. So, you know, we were there, I guess, for assistance to try and help the bondsman take this person into custody. But I always in the back of my mind thought something about this doesn't feel right. So uh, officers can can be present to, you know, keep the peace, if you will, to right. control the situation. But if, if there's no pending charges, if there's no OFA, you know, officers really don't have much authority to get actively involved. Now, if they want to stand back or, or park a cruiser uh, in a driveway and, and just kind of be present and let their presence mm-hmm. be known and that calms everything down, that's great. Right. Right. But if it's a, uh, you know, if it's a, a voluntary surrender with no OFA and, and there's, there's no process for the officer, uh, if this guy comes running out the back door, you better, better let him swing on by. Well, it's kind of like a repo, Jordan. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can't, the Good officer point. can't intervene. The officer can just stand by and say, okay, now everybody get along. Talk to us, Jordan, about the authority that bail bondsmen have in North Carolina? What, what authority or responsibilities do they have? Certainly. And the, you brought up an interesting point about the intersection of law enforcement and bail bonding. I always say law, bail bondsmen are not law enforcement officers. And I, anytime I get a chance to present to any audience, uh, that's the, the point I try and drive home. They are not law enforcement officers. They do not have special uh, rules or laws that protect them or allow them to break criminal law. Uh, so anytime you wonder, is a bail bondsman doing the right thing or the wrong thing, if you would just swap out civilian for bail bondsman, if a civilian is not allowed to do it, a bondsman is not allowed to do it either, probably 99.9% of the time. So the question is, what authority do they have? Uh, they have significant authority, and it, it's easy to pinpoint. They get to write bonds and get people out of jail, and they get to arrest and surrender people back into jail. That is a huge amount of power and authority over people. I mentioned that they don't have the right to violate any criminal law, and I know that uh, your law enforcement officers listening are are already saying in their minds, yeah, but they get to break into people's houses, and regular civilians don't get to do that. And you're certainly right, except for the power to break into someone's home is limited to the main listed address of the principal. So when a bondsman bonds somebody out of jail, they have to list one address for that person. And that main listed address is the only address that the bondsman can forcibly enter. And they can only do so because the principal, the the person who's been bonded out, has agreed in writing to allow the bondsman to have the power to enter the home. And therefore, they have written consent from the person who lives in the home. And as we all know, if you have written consent to enter, it's not really a breaking and entering at all. Uh, At that point, uh, they're doing what they were allowed to do in writing. So they don't have any special powers. Bondsmen are not law enforcement. They don't have uh, special powers to carry or use firearms to damage property, to violate traffic laws. Um, So if if a civilian can't do it, a bondsman probably can't do it either. And then on the other side of that is their responsibilities. They have uh, quite a few, most of them are statutory. Uh, Some are are more administrative rules uh, regarding paperwork and things like that, but they must 
maintain financial responsibility. Bondsmen will either have their own money on deposit at DOI or have the backing of an insurance company that issues them powers of attorney to write bonds. Uh, they can't exceed those authorities. Uh, they must take continuing education classes every year. Uh, there are special rules regarding collateral. If they take property, they are not to damage or degrade that property. They must return the premium or the collateral promptly if they're required to do so. They're not allowed to lie or misrepresent to the court you know, regarding the nature of their arrangement, the amount of money paid, the reason for surrendering a defendant. And I think one of their biggest responsibilities is that they are only allowed to use the force that is reasonably necessary to effect an arrest. They're limited the same way that law enforcement is. You can only use reasonable force. Um, and then I think a more general responsibilities would be that they have to treat their clients with respect and dignity and recognize their humanity. It's important to note the power dynamic. Criminal defendants who are out on bond are some of the most vulnerable people in our society. They are at a huge disadvantage when it comes to information, to money, and to power. Uh, most criminal defendants don't know the law, and they certainly don't know what a bondsman can and cannot do to them. Uh, most have little, if any, money and are more or less scraping by month to month. And then you have a bondsman who has all the power to arrest them and put them back in jail. And bondsmen are allowed to put someone that they've bonded out back in jail uh, for any host of reasons or for literally no reason at all. If the bondsman has just decided that they don't want to be on the bond anymore, they can surrender someone back into the jail. When you talk about surrendering somebody into the jail, the real risk is not physically being put in a cell, although that would be unpleasant. The real risk is if you get surrendered back into the jail and you can't make your new bond or hire a different bondsman, you risk kind of more or less losing your way of life. If you're in jail, you're not at your job, so your boss is going to fire you. If you're in jail, you're not paying your rent, and you're going to be evicted. If you're evicted, your, your landlord is not going to keep all of your possessions and put them in storage and pay the bills. They're going to put them all on the side of the road and watch the garbage man take them away. If you're not paying your rent, you're probably not paying your car payment. You're going to lose your car. If you have children and you're in jail, you risk losing custody of your kids. You risk losing those family connections, whether it's a spouse or a boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, or, or just general family. The threat of going back to jail is, is actually the threat to lose your entire way of life. And one person, a bondsman, having that much power over someone else can be very traumatic. And it can certainly lead to abuses on the side of the person with the power. So uh, with great power that the bondsmen possess, over the people that they bond out, they also have uh, a significant amount of responsibility to handle with care the, the people's lives that they hold there. Well, w with that said, I know, obviously, from a geographical standpoint, North Carolina touches a lot of bordering states. Obviously, there's a lot of crossing of state lines back and forth. Uh, I think of a case recently up in Murphy where some guys from Tennessee came in and had a large cache of drugs with them. So I, I think about bondsmen doing the same things. So do bondsmen from adjoining states have any authority in North Carolina? And the same thing, do North Carolina licensed bondsmen have authority in adjoining states? 
Great question, and I'll give you the the lawyer answer to start with. Uh, it depends. It's kind of a gray area. Um, some states have an outright ban on any out-of-state bail bondsman coming into their state. Other states have laws specifically saying an out-of-state bondsman can operate in their state. And then most states, like North Carolina, do not explicitly address out-of-state bail bondsmen. It is a quite a significant problem. I think probably over a third of our counties border another state. So like you highlighted, we're going to have quite a bit of overlap. Um, usually we see out-of-state bondsmen coming into North Carolina in terms of trying to arrest someone that they have already bonded out. And rarely do we see an out-of-state bondsman coming into North Carolina and attempting to write a North Carolina bond. Uh, and, and that's usually just because they wouldn't have money on deposit with, with DOI. They wouldn't have the backing of a North Carolina approved insurance company with their powers of attorneys issued. So it's usually just crossing into North Carolina to arrest someone they bonded out. They usually find their defendant, arrest them, and drive them back to their home state without much trouble. So to try and answer your question, a fair reading of our statutes is that no, uh, out-of-state bail bondsmen do not have authority in North Carolina. North Carolina General Statute 5871-40 uh, lists the requirements to get a North Carolina license, and part of it says that no person shall act as a bail bondsman unless that person is qualified and licensed in North Carolina. So that seems to be a pretty pretty straightforward statement. And then 587150 lists the qualifications for a bondsman and requires, among other things, that the bail bondsman must be a resident of the state to get licensed. Uh, so you got to live in North Carolina to get a North Carolina license, and you have to uh, be qualified and licensed in North Carolina to act as a bail bondsman. However, there is no specific law that says an out-of-state bail bondsman is not allowed to operate inside North Carolina. And the counter-argument is that the North Carolina legislature, like a number of other states have done, could have chosen to specifically ban out-of-state bondsmen, and they did not do that. Therefore, the legislature meant to leave it open. Uh, and there is language from the U.S. Supreme Court in cases that go back as far as 150 years ago, that says specifically bondsmen can cross state lines to recapture their principles. Uh, and the argument there goes that you don't want someone who was bonded out in South Carolina to be able to step over the North Carolina line and hide from their bondsmen and, and say, this, this line protects me, you can't come get me. So there's a push and pull there. Uh, the good news is the backstop to any abuse by a bondsman, whether they're licensed in North Carolina or out of state, is that if they violate the criminal law, they can and will be charged and prosecuted. And that can take the form of injury to property by damaging a door or a window, uh, maybe an assault charge if, if they hurt someone, uh, breaking and entering charges, kidnapping charges, and so on. And they can also be sued in civil court, regardless of where they're licensed or, or where they came from. So we do have some options, even though uh, it's not explicitly clear whether or not bondsmen can operate from out of state in North Carolina. And then the opposite is true as well. North Carolina bondsmen can go into other states, and it depends on the other state's laws. Uh, so bondsmen should be very wary of traveling from one state to another. I know for certain that Virginia does not allow 
North Carolina bondsman to operate in Virginia without a Virginia license. And of course, if you're a North Carolina bondsman, you cannot get a Virginia license. And they have even imprisoned North Carolina bondsmen for doing that. Um, I won't give any advice on, on other states, but uh, bondsmen should be wary uh, when they travel from state to state. The best advice would be hire a, a local bondsman to help you. That's the, that's the easy way to go. Got it. I hope that answered the question. Oh, it did. And again, Jordan, thanks. I kind of allowed my personal curiosity to get us a little bit wide in the turns and once again, kind of off subject. So Josh, I'm going to ask you to come back to the mic once again and, and let's try and get laser focused on where we're supposed to be. I think my experience has shown that magistrates probably have the greatest interaction with bondsmen. But law enforcement officers, especially in a lot of the smaller jurisdictions of our state, know the bondsmen within their areas. So let's get really specific about this thing and ask if there are any signals or behaviors to look for in a bondsman who might be involved in some type of human trafficking. And that's an excellent question. Um, bail bondsmen are allowed to charge up to 15% of the bond amount but they can also take as little as 0%. But then the question becomes, you know, why would anybody take 0% if you're in the business to make money? So if a magistrate notices that a bondsman's accepting extremely low or no money for a bond when they turn in the paperwork, you know, perhaps they're uh, accepting illicit goods or services. So that's one thing a magistrate would want to be uh, leery of. A magistrate should also be skeptical, too, if uh, they notice that a bondsman is only bonding out females or only bonding out males. Again, that may be another red flag indicator that there's something illegal going on. Uh, in some situations, and uh, the case that, that Tyler's uh, going to talk about, involved a bondsman who was using his own home address on the bonding paperwork. Uh, and the magistrate actually picked up on that and noticed that all the people that were being bonded out, all the females that were being bonded out had the exact same address and it was the bondsman's address. And that was because uh, the bondsman had moved in the um, moved in the defendants into the residence. So that, those are the kind of things that if, if, if a magistrate notices, please reach out to us. We'll investigate those complaints. Also, one thing, too, to take into account is if a defendant makes comments about being wrongfully treated by a bondsman, don't just outright dismiss it. Um, yes, they are a criminal defendant, but you know maybe there's something to it. Some of the, some of the complaints may be frivolous or or even even lies, but we've we found that some of the allegations made by defendants about bondsmen are, are in fact true. So reach out to our agency. We'll be happy to investigate all those complaints. Okay, good deal. Special Agent Tyler Carpenter, I hope you haven't snoozed off while we've uh, allowed two of your colleagues to answer the bulk of the questions, but uh, I want to get down a little bit deeper into the, into the weeds on our subject. And we all know from information, from training, from the things that we read that human trafficking can take on many facets. It, we're now seeing it just, just grow legs and go all in different directions. And it's no longer happening in in shady back rooms of small communities anymore. It's it's a business and it's and it's a very large business. So let's talk about the elements of trafficking that a bail bondsman might be involved in. So we heard just just moments ago when, when Josh was talking about addresses and specific genders, 
So if you could, Tyler, just be specific with us about those elements that a bail bondsman could be involved in when it comes to human trafficking. So, so breaking down to the elements, we kind of look at the, at the big picture from involuntary servitude in the state statute to sexual servitude, uh, things that, that we've seen and got complaints on, uh, throughout the state are, uh, parts where a, uh, bondsman will force, uh, their principal, the person bonded out of jail to engage in sexual contact with them for the bond. I'll go into more depth on that here in a, here in a little bit. Uh, several complaints we've received, uh, our bondsmen who actually bond a female out of jail, take them to uh, a hotel and uh, for lack of better words, pimp them out uh, to different Johns in the hotel room to make the money for uh, the bond. Uh, other things that we saw is flipping the script back to the involuntary servitude and the the federal side of the house on forced uh, labor is bondsmen uh, bonding the principal out and having them do work for them uh, for payment and and stuff of that. So it, it really bounces around to a lot of different things. We've had uh, complaints and investigations on the bondsmen having the principal sell drugs for them, engage in other criminal behavior, theft rings, and stuff like that for the bondsman. So there, there's many things, and one of the big things that Jordan had on was that that power and the abuse of power that comes sometimes. Well, I know there are stories that go along in law enforcement, and nobody loves a good story better than a cop. We traditionally refer to them as war stories. So I understand that you've had direct involvement with a human trafficking case. If you don't mind, just kind of take your time and, and tell us about that story and about that case and the investigative nature that it took on for you. It, it was a whole, it was a different experience for me. Uh, and like Josh mentioned earlier, magistrate actually kind of brought this uh, to light. He had noticed that people that were were getting out of jail as he was processing their paperwork. He noticed they all had the same address and he kind of, he brought that up to the chief of police and uh, it was sent over to investigations where I was at at the time and uh, started looking into it. And then from that point, there got to be a whole lot of talk in the jail. And another thing that uh, Josh hit on a lot of the, a lot of this talk had been going on for a long time. It just kind of got dismissed because people in the court, uh, officers, uh, when they hear this, sometimes they just don't really know. Sometimes it's taken as, oh, well, they're in jail all the time. They're just trying to get out, uh, and stuff don't get looked at as seriously as it should. Uh, on this one, after getting that complaint, it, it started getting looked into. And come to find out there was there's like a hundred and sixty people having the same address on that case. And when we started diving into it, we started getting a lot of the same stories from interviews from girls and the the jail calls on the talk going on about, hey, if you get in jail, all you have to do is cause it call this bondsman. You don't have to have money, it'll get you right out. Uh, we ended up working this case with the FBI 
and uh, we ended up taking it federal and charged with forced labor. We had at the end, we probably had 30 some victims, only four of those really came forward that sexual acts had, had happened throughout the process. Uh, we ended up getting uh, a guilty plea in federal court and uh, the court actually made a statement that uh, is really good and it states the laws regarding the bail bonding process in the state of North Carolina and the Cherokee Tribal Court were not designed or intended to achieve sexual favors for a bondsman from a client defendant. The defendant abused the legal process in order to pressure or coerce the victim to provide him with labor for services. And uh, there, there's a whole lot more about that. There's a whole lot more of this happening. Uh, these cases are are very hard to work. It's very hard to get get the victims to come forward. When we were mentioning uh, the trauma stuff earlier, you have to take into account the systematic trauma uh, in these cases where most of the time your principal, somebody that this is happening to, it's kind of become their way of life. They're in and out and this is their option to get out if they're going to be out. And uh, like Jordan said earlier, we have have many, many good bondsmen throughout the state of North Carolina that do things the right way, but it only takes one of these and it kind of changes everything. It's a good story, Tyler. Thanks for sharing it with us. Also possibly asleep at the mic by now is Amber Burgess Cox, who is an instructor developer at the North Carolina Justice Academy West Campus in Edneyville. Amber, we're about to head short on time, but if you've got anything that you'd like to add into what these three guys with the Department of Insurance have shared with us on this subject of human trafficking bail bondsmen, here's your opportunity. Well, I just wanted to thank the guys from Department of Insurance for agreeing to come on our podcast today. I saw them at the state human trafficking conference put on in September, and I was blown away by their presentation because I had never thought about bail bondsmen and human trafficking. And I just want to let everybody know we are starting a human trafficking protocols virtual class. Um, one date will be January 24th, 2022, March 28th, 2022, and May 23rd, 2022. It's a six-hour class. It's virtual. You can sign up for it in ACADIS, and you get six hours credit. It counts towards your CICP. It's going to be a good class, and if we have enough interest in human trafficking, we want to try to put on a human trafficking institute in the fall in Edneyville to bring all these people together, advocates, guys from Department of Insurance, everybody onto the table. Well, folks, our time is up, but I want to thank you all for sharing your various levels of expertise you have truly put a lot of new light on a rather dark subject on that connection between bail bondsmen and human trafficking, as well as the many, many facets and very large umbrella under which a lot of things rest within the North Carolina Department of Insurance. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month throughout the United States. If you see suspicious activity that could be even remotely related to human trafficking, Please don't hesitate to call the law enforcement agency that serves your area or the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-343-7888.
1-800-273-8888. Additional resources are also available on the North Carolina Human Trafficking Commission website. Our guests for this episode have been Joshua Falls, District Commander of the Criminal Investigations Division, Tyler Carpenter, who is a special agent with the Department of Insurance, and Jordan Green from the Criminal Legal Services Division, all within the Department of Insurance. And of course, also joining us for this episode, Amber Burgess Cox, a former law enforcement officer, now an instructor developer with the North Carolina Justice Academy West Campus in Edneyville. Folks, that concludes our podcast for this episode. Until we meet again, please stay safe. The North Carolina Justice Academy is committed to helping the fight against human trafficking. A new episode will be posted weekly on our website at www.ncdoj.gov forward slash ncja. Click podcast at the top of the page to find current and previous topics and last year's discussions on human trafficking. Or subscribe on your favorite apps like iTunes, Spotify, and more. NCJA 1014.